0: So, um, bhakti yoga. <clears throat> well, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, there's an important Sanskrit text called Brahma Sutra or Yoga Sutra. Uh, not sorry, Brahma Sutra or Vedanta Sutra. And uh, the word sutra is there any way to uh, are there any doors? Between Can you close the door, Martin? We'll
1: If we can move forward, that would really help me more space in the back. So there's
0: little space in the front. If we can move forward, we'd appreciate it. So the word sutra in Sanskrit means thread and it is cognate with that means in terms of historical linguistics. Everyone, please turn your phones off. I actually turned my phone off this time. (laughs) Yeah, so please don't text or receive or make phone calls or also no medical emergencies during the talk. (laughs) So uh, we have the English word uh, suture, like when they stitch you, or even the, the word sew, to sew you know, like sewing. That's all related to the Sanskrit word sutra, which means a thread. And uh Krishna uses the word thread in the Gita, in a few places actually. For example, Krishna says that um Ahung Sarvasya Prabhava, I'm the source of everything. sarvam pravartate," from me everything emanates. And uh Actually, I'm thinking of another verse where he says everything is resting on me Sutre maniganaiva just like pearls are What? Oh, yeah This word proton that everything is actually resting on me Or almost like uh, yeah, everything is resting on me. I won't go into the technical points Uh, is resting on me Money ganayiva like pearls on a thread. So if you think of this analogy of pearls on a thread, uh, you actually can't see the thread, but everything is resting on the thread. So in the same way, we may not see Krishna at the present time, but everything is resting on Krishna. That's the example he gives. So there is a genre of literature. There's a kind of literature in Sanskrit, Vedic literature, which is sutra literature. And there are many sutras. There's Brahma Sutra, Vedanta Sutra, there's Mimangsaka Sutras. And these sutras are books that just give the essence. In fact, they're so brief and so condensed that it's hard to understand what they're talking about some of the time. And so therefore you need commentaries. So it's just giving the essence in as few words as possible. Uh, so The most famous sutra literature is called Brahma Sutras or Vedanta Sutras. And they begin with the statement, Atato Brahma Jigyasa. Now, uh, the desire, literally, I'll give you a very literal translation, now the desire to understand the absolute truth. The idea is, there's many relative truths. Like, for example, as you all know, Harrisburg is the capital of Pennsylvania. Something that's probably very important to all of us. Anyway, just kidding. <laughs> so um, if something sounds crazy, it's probably a joke. <laughs> so the idea is that we know all kinds of, we have all kinds of information about this world. But there was a time when Harrisburg was not the capital of Pennsylvania. There's a time when there was no Pennsylvania, and there will come a time in the future when you know, inevitably by the laws of nature, there won't be a Pennsylvanian. So it's a temporary fact. Uh, however there are some facts that are always true they're eternal truth and that is really what we are concerned with what is always true Uh, and so the reason we're concerned with this is because we are always true we always exist Uh, as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita we are not the body in fact as I explained last night uh, it's really absurd to say that we're the body based on our personal experience, because all of us have experienced childhood. Actually, I gave her first grains this morning. I think I think she's demanding more now. She's uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: renegotiating her contract. So. <laughs> So Krishna gives the example, dehi no sminjata dehi, just as in this body, uh, the embodied soul experiences, childhood, komar jovanam jara, childhood, adolescence, and then finally old age. And yet we're the same person, the body's different. The body you have now is actually not the same body even that you had yesterday. Because for example, our skin uh, gets replaced about every two weeks. That's why I know that, because when I was at Harvard, I, uh, I got poison oak or poison ivy or something cleaning out the garden, and it took two weeks to go away because it bonds to the skin. And you have to actually literally replace the skin or nuke it with penis, you know, antibiotics. So anyway, so every two weeks, you have different skin. So if you would say someone is romantic and they have some in, in, uh, Romantic encounter in which they're touching someone else's skin, and then they see the person again two weeks later. It's actually a different, a, you know, it's a different, <laughs> it's
1: a different skin.
0: So don't get too romantic yet. <laughs> the person has been like re skinned, you know. And then, and then, and then, eventually, you get reincarnated. You know, carne means the flesh. So the body we have—they say every seven years you just replace the elements of the body. So divide your age by seven. And that's how many times you've already reincarnated in this life. So the question, is there reincarnation, is not really a serious question because we've already done it. If if you're over seven years old. If you're not over seven years old, sue me. Anyway, just kidding. So, um, So anyway, you divide your age by seven and that's how many times you've reincarnated. So then the real question is, and Krishna says, Tata Dehangdaraprapti. Krishna says the same process continues uh, when you leave this body and take another body. So even if someone is not sure that they will survive bodily death, even if someone is not sure that this reincarnation process that we've already experienced several times in this life, um, you know, never ask a sannyasi their age, so I won't tell you how old I am. <laughs> but since we've already experienced reincarnation so many times, then the question is, um, does this continue at the time of death? And Krishna says, yes. Yeah. So, you know, there's a good chance that Krishna is right. You may not know if Krishna is, is telling the truth. You may not know if this, these words are actually coming from God. But uh, it's, your, it's your best hope. So, for example, if someone falls off a cruise ship, which people seem to do with sort of surprising regularity. So, if someone falls off a cruise ship, and they throw you a uh, you know something to grab onto, and you could say, "Well, what if the rope breaks, or what if you know what if they're not really going to save me?" But you better grab it, because <laughs> otherwise, you're definitely going to drown. And so, in the same way. Krishna is giving us this hope and of course if you are spiritually advanced then you know it's true because you experience it you experience your your soul as eternal but even if one has not experienced the soul directly if you got a better idea hmm. so it's an rational self-interest actually this argument was given by um, one of the great geniuses of the 1600s great mathematician scientist and a religious person, Blaise Pascal, <coughs> uh, the French philosopher. And he gave what is called Pascal's wager or Pascal's bet. And he, again, he's a great mathematician. So he said simply that there are four possible, there are four mathematical possi- possibilities. One is that uh, you don't believe in God. And there is no God, you believe in God, and there's no God, you don't believe in God, and there is a God. Uh, uh, or no, wait, wait, you believe in God. Okay, well, I'll do this again. There's only four, but I managed to uh, make a mess of them. That was not a senior moment, I was just uh, not paying attention. Okay, so. One possibility is that you don't believe in God and there's no God. Uh or you don't believe in God and there is a God, or you believe in God and there's no God, or you believe in God and there is a God. There's no God. No, no, you believe in God and there is a God. (laughs) Yes, yes. We got it, yeah. Yeah. You're fired. So So, um, can't get good help nowadays. So (laughs) anyway, so what, what Pascal said, what Pascal said is that if you don't believe in God and there is no God, what do you get out of that? First of all, you'll never know you were right because if there's no God, no one is omniscient. If no one's omniscient, no one knows if God exists or not. That's why atheism is sort of the you know it's a philosophical loser because if you're right you'll never know it. So so if you don't believe in God and there's no God, studies show that even like let's say social science studies show it's not going to improve your life. You'll never know if you're right. If you don't believe in God, wait. If if you don't believe in God and well let me do it this way. If you believe in God. And there's no God. Well, contrast, let's say first, you don't believe in God and and, and and there's no God, or what if you believe in God and there's no God? In other words, you got it wrong. you don't know you're wrong, but actually you're wrong. So in that case, what the science shows is you'll still probably have a better life because there's all these studies that show that you know people that believe and pray, they often recover, Better or more quickly from diseases, they tend to be happier, they have better marriages on average, and so, so there's all kinds of apparent benefits in believing in God, even if you're wrong. Now, if you don't believe in God and there is a God, you really stepped in it, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> of course, this is coming from the Christian perspective eternal hell and other sort of crazy ideas but anyway but if you don't believe it I mean we won't go there as far as this idea that God is the supreme the supreme psychopath who tortures his own children forever if they uh, you know if they don't believe in it which is not really a serious idea about God but let's say apart from that kind of uh, you know sort of theological terrorism let's say that um, let's say you don't believe in God, and there is a God, and let's say God is not jealous, he's not angry, he's kind of emotionally balanced, <laughs> then still, if you don't believe in God and there is God, you lost the, the, the greatest possible opportunity. You lost the greatest possible opportunity. You, you, you lost. So, and if you believe in God and there is a God, actually, then of course, obviously, you know, you win the lottery, sort of the existential lottery and uh, you get these supreme benefits. So Pascal said, if you don't believe in God, either it does nothing for you, or you really mess up. Those are the two possibilities, no gain or huge loss. And if you believe in God, let's say if there is a God, or even if there's not a God, if you believe in God, either you benefit yourself, according to social science, or you actually get the supreme reward. So he said it's actually in your rational self-interest. It's in your rational self-interest to believe in God. Then, But apart from that, um, I would like to propose that actually, uh, how should I put it, sort of atheism or... Atheism is actually a rejection of philosophy. I'd like to explain what I mean by that. Because, I mean, the typical argument, given, I guess this is where we're going tonight. I just, I didn't plan this, but maybe we're going to do a little more philosophy. If, if this is so much philosophy, and you were here, you came to the program last night, you can't take any more philosophy than, you know, run for the door and call 911. So, We
1: can't. our from on.
0: Oh. you can turn them off on, on when you get out. So um because human reason of course means you, you try to understand the truth. If if someone had no interest in the truth you know they actually might vote for a certain person for present, but anyway, never mind that. So if, if if someone had if someone had no interest in truth, then it, it's sort of like animal life. I mean, if you think of human progress, if you think of cavemen, I mean, uh, you you know, we really don't know if there were cavemen. I mean, obviously, people took advantage of caves because when it rains, you want a good cave. And if you light a fire in the cave because, you know, you have kind of cave walls around you, you can get warm. And you can get shelter and protection from certain types of animals, especially the big ones that don't fit in the cave. And we know that people, their cave drawings, you know, around the world we find these very, very ancient cave drawings go back many, many, many thousands of years. However, to say that the people in the caves would come out, you know, like the man comes out, hits the woman over the head with a club, drags her back into the cave. We don't really know that people did that. And uh, there's actually no evidence that they were the kind of primitive brutes, like when you say cavemen. But in any case, you um, If you didn't have the desire, if you didn't have the, because yogis also live in caves, by the way. So you could have people who are in the highest possible state of consciousness and they're also cavemen or cave women. So, but that trying to understand the truth is sort of what distinguishes a human being from an animal. The idea that you want to know, who am I? Where have I come from? What is the reality of this world? For example, Someone who has no philosophical inclination just wakes up in the morning and, you know, person does what they do and you don't think about things. But someone who sometimes wonders, well, what is the world? Where did the world come from? And why am I in the world at all? If you don't think those questions, if, if human beings never asked those questions, there wouldn't be philosophy or science or religion. So it's in the process of not simply accepting the world you see as everything, but trying to go beyond it, trying to understand it. For example, the world is made of what we call matter. You know, it's an energy that we call matter. And so, uh, in a sense, both the scientist and the, the philosopher or the and the, the religious person, they share the same interests. In fact, earlier in history, before sort of this, uh, before this war between religion and science. Religion and science actually worked together for a very long time. And so they're asking the same question, what is the world? And so from different perspectives, what is matter? The scientist says, what is matter really? What's the world actually made of? And then this of course led ultimately to quantum mechanics and so on and so forth. And then the uh, philosopher may ask it. But, and, and then the religious person says, what is the world? And you read Bhagavad Gita and Krishna explains what the world is. So it's not simply being satisfied with ignorance. If someone is satisfied with ignorance, they're actually, I mean, it's not an exalted position to be satisfied. Now, it doesn't mean you have to know everything. There's also a lot of trivial facts in the world. So I'm not talking about, saying you have to literally know everything, like read every book ever written you know, count how many grains of sand there are on the nearest beach or something. But, but fundamental knowledge, like what is the world? Who am I? Why am I here? And uh, who made the world? Did someone make the world? So it's in the process of asking these questions that one becomes intelligent and one in a sense becomes truly human. It's not simply an animal, human animal, two-legged animal just, you know, pushing food in its face reproducing fighting other two-legged animals and all kinds of fun things like that so what what really distinguishes us is that we have intelligence we can try to understand where we are who we are where it all comes from and also if you you look at human reason whether it's in mathematics or philosophy or theology there's always this drive to simplify for example if someone says could I have 1290, uh, could I have 1296 of the pie? I mean, you could just say, I want an eighth of the pie. Hmm. You know, people don't talk like that. Can I have 1296 of the pie <laughs> So like when you do math, you reduce things to their simplest expression. Philosophers also do that because uh, that way you discover the underlying principles. Anyway, so the ability to generalize for example, let's say you see a horse, and you and it's the first time you've ever seen a horse, and wow, what is that? That long neck, you know, four legs, bushy tail, and so on. So, and then you see another horse, then you make a connection, you generalize. Wait a second, that's the same, it's not identical, but it's the same kind of thing I saw before. And then eventually you see lots of horses, and maybe there's even a science where, where people study horses. And, uh, and so on and so forth. The same is true with governments. You can, you know, suffer under one particular government, then you can study other governments. That's what Aristotle did. He actually studied governments in different societies. And then you can eventually develop something which looks like political science. You can talk about the nature of democracy. It's good points and bad points. You can talk about other forms of government, monarchy, anarchy, oligarchy, and so on. So that's how people become intelligent. That's how they reason. And then you say, well, well, ultimately, are there underlying principles? For example, in physics, they're trying to find out, what is. is is there an equation that explains all equations? Einstein, for example, came up with E equals mc squared, which was very clever. And uh, that explained a lot of things that explained a lot of things. So the more explanatory power one statement has, uh, the more important it is. And so ultimately, whether it's in physics or in Vedanta Sutra, or in any serious field of knowledge or philosophy, the ultimate goal is to find some expression which explains everything. Can we find some simple fact that explains all other facts? Because if you don't simplify, if you don't, and I say reduce, not in the sense of diminishing something, but simplifying your expression of it, without this process of generalizing and simplifying and categorizing, in fact, human beings cannot reason. For example, if you say, well, I drove to work yesterday and uh, a bridge was washed out and I had to drive around and I got to work late and I was fired. Now I got another job in the same place, so maybe I won't go the same way the bridge. In other words, if you can't repeat, like, okay, the bridge was washed out, so must you have to be able to generalize, to apply experience. And so ultimately, ultimately, no one can a priori. A priori means like, like before you even begin, you can't really reject the idea of God, because why would you? If there is a God, and of course, people can argue about what the nature of God would be. If there is a God, what would God be like? But you can't reject the possibility that one fact explains all other facts. Now, the scientists uh, go about this in a different way, and it's, uh, it's interesting and pathetic at the same time. Uh, the pathetic part is that uh, you can get a PhD in science without taking a philosophy class. And therefore, you can be, you know, a really good scientist and philosophically braindead, which is actually we see a lot. So it's 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 very easy to demonstrate. It's very easy to demonstrate, and I'm repeating a few things I said yesterday, but no refunds. Which, you know, <laughs> yesterday, sannyasis don't give refunds. You should know that, you know, before you go to a sannyasi's class. So. And that is that um, it's very easy to prove logically that a materialistic or empirical description of reality can never be complete. By its very nature, it can never be complete. It can never give a complete description of reality. And the reason is because we know as self-evident facts. I talked a lot about that yesterday. Self-evident means something proves itself to you. I won't go over the whole thing from yesterday, but for example, you can't do science unless you are convinced or you believe or hope that there's a real world outside your mind. Descartes said, what if an evil genius has just got you in the laboratory? You're just a little brain in a bottle and actually there is no world. Your idea that you have friends, family, you live somewhere, it's all just an illusion which is, has been induced in you, you know, through a kind of neurological meddling. And so therefore, um, if you're a scientist, you have to believe and simply believe not on faith, but because you claim it's just self-evident, just proves itself. Just like they say, you can't hold a candle to the sun. The sun is the brightest light uh, in our world. Well, apart from Dodger Stadium, I guess. But. <laughs> The lights, no, but but in terms of <laughs> anyway, um, so there's <clears throat> but the sun is so bright, the sun is so bright that you can't hold something else up to the sun to illuminate it, it's self luminous. The sun reveals itself, you cannot reveal the sun by shining some other light on it. And so, in the same way, our experience that there's a real world outside of our mind presents itself to us in such a convincing way that we just say, well, it's self-evident, it proves itself. So in exactly the same way, there are self-evident facts which are not physical, they're not material. For example, the fact that it is bad and wrong to kill an innocent person. And let's say it's not one of those philosophical games where you're standing on a bridge over a, a railroad track they, they do this in you know undergraduate philosophy classes you're standing on a bridge over a railroad track and a trains coming filled with all let's say it's all kinds of children and parents are going somewhere and you see that you can see from from your platform that down the road around a curve the bridge has collapsed and the train is going to plummet from a very high from a, a very uh, high distance, and and all people in train are going to be killed, and you can see that, and the engine train engineer can't see it, and the trains, and they're the only way to save all those people. And it, it so it so happens there's a man standing next to you on the platform, who is sort of like amazingly fat, It's like this really big guy, and he maybe weighs like 400 pounds. But somehow, or other, the way he sort of leaned over, you could actually push him onto the track, you could actually do that. You could push him onto the track. He's going to die, but you're going to save hundreds of lives. So you push him. (laughs) Anyway, uh, rather than go into that whole discussion, since this is not an undergraduate philosophy class, but the reason I mention that is there are times when you do something which ordinarily would be considered evil or wrong, but the circumstances somehow make it necessary. Like, for example, let's say you look at your neighbor's house. and You see it, it's on fire. And you know that there's some children in the house. The parents are gone. And uh, so you basically, you just break the windows down, you kick in the door, you grab the children, and you, and, and, you, and you take them out of the house. Now, let's say there's no fire in the house and you break the windows and kick down the door and take all the children, you know, <laughs> you to be in jail for a very long time. So, so there are special circumstances, but let's say, therefore, I'm giving a non-controversial case. Let's say a case where someone kills a child and there are no extenuating circumstances, not like that somehow by some crazy set of circumstances, By killing a child, a million lives were saved. There's nothing like that. It's just with no benefit for anyone, someone just kills a child. Now we know that that's wrong. And in fact, we do not simply believe that it's wrong. We know that it's wrong. To the extent that we are capable of knowing anything, to the extent that we are made in such a way that we are capable of knowing anything, we know that's wrong. And we know that it's wrong just as well as we know that there's a real world outside our minds. So there are certain moral truths, such as, for example, it is wrong to cause significant harm to innocent people. And the more significant the harm and the more innocent the person, of course, the greater the evil. So we know that. We know it as surely as we know that there's a real world. And therefore, we live in a bi-dimensional universe. We live in a universe that is both physical and metaphysical. Now, if you believe that there are no objective metaphysical truths, then you could, for example, let's say we obviously have a serious environmental problem. And on the earth, that can be solved very easily and that is very large scale genocide because from the point from the scientific point of view if there if nothing is true except empirical truths so called truths then since right and wrong are not empirical facts you can't you can never empirically prove that something is morally right or wrong in fact the very idea is absurd I mean, it's a meaningless statement. It's like saying, saying, uh, I just saw a round square. There's no such thing. If someone talks about a round square, it just means they don't understand English very well, or they're crazy, (laughs) or bad joke, or something. (laughs) Because the words round square, or square circle, are actually meaningless. They don't mean anything in English. And so, um, if someone says that, there's no God, there's no soul. If someone says that, then the logical consequence is that there can't, how can there be right and wrong, moral right and wrong? Because if only physical things exist, that's called materialism, philosophical materialism. And somehow or other science, for the last few centuries, in their... uh, outstanding ignorance, Uh, they have propagated the illusion, which many scientists are now rebelling against, by the way. There's actually a revolution, intellectual revolution, going on in the world of science. It's growing, and that is more and more scientists and philosophers saying, wait a second. Philosophical materialism is not the natural or the necessary worldview to do science. You don't have to be a philosophical materialist to do great science. And most of the greatest scientists in history were not atheists. But still, if you take this seriously, if you say that uh, that nothing exists except physical things, which you can't prove, of course, because that claim can't be empirically proved. So if the statement is true, it's false, which means it's nonsense. But in any case, if someone believes that there's nothing except uh, physical things, then you then there's no such thing as morality. If you think it's wrong, let's say, to walk into a school and kill a bunch of children, oh, what's really happening is that you were that evolution neurologically wired you to believe a fairy tale, namely that it's wrong to kill children. That's just a, you know, it's a fairy tale. But evolution, blind evolution wired you that way because people who believe that had a better survival uh, chance than, than societies that didn't believe it. So everything that we think is good or true like you know parents should love and take care of their children, that we shouldn't harm innocent people, that we should all those things are, they're just they're just neurological fairy tales. And therefore if someone let's say, kills a million people, someone like Hitler. Actually, interestingly, uh, people claiming to be communists and Marxists killed between 10 and 20 times more people than Hitler, and the people <laughs> on, you know, American campuses that think they're sexy by being communists uh, need help. So, but actually, people claiming to be Marxists and communists kill between 10 and 20 times more people than Hitler. And because the leftists control the universities, that's not something that's talked about a lot. Just a little fact for you there. So, if Marx is right, and uh, let's say religion is the opiate of the people, there's this whole war on religion. You get Marx, you get Freud. You know, Marx says it's just it's just a drug that makes people stupid, so they don't throw off their chains and kill the capitalists. And then Freud said that religion is a, an emotional disorder. And, uh, Edward Gibbons wrote the decline and fall of the Roman empire saying that this great classical empire fell because it became Christian and on and on and on and on Max Weber, who kind of was one of the people invented modern sociology, not Weber Durkheim, French guy. Yeah, he's an atheist. So, you know,
1: um,
0: said that actually what we call God is really just the power of society. That just by the nature of the way we are as creatures, that society exerts a great power on us, and we personify that power and call it God, but it's really just you know the sociological force. Of... So, so all these different so-called intellectuals, you know, it was like a big pile on, like a dog pile on religion, and and the idea was to just you know smash it. In every field, you look at, like, you know, whether it's sociology or psychology or, or historical studies, everyone was trying to destroy religion because they saw it. Not everyone, but, but a lot of these intellectuals. Of course, some people fought back. But in any case, let's say if they said, if, if, if let's say these people were right and nothing is real except things we can empirically investigate, then you cannot say that it's wrong to kill people animals kill each other and, and therefore it's no 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 coincidence that probably the most famous fan of hitler someone who just thought i mean um darwin someone said darwin's right and this is a great idea and we should we should we need applied darwinism was adolf hitler hitler was one of the biggest fans of darwin and when hitler started his you know racial cleansing uh, he thought Hitler, in his, you know, extremely sick mind, he thought he was carrying out a scientific social Darwinian project. And actually, even people in England, I mean, the idea was if you take Darwin seriously and it's not about God, of course, Darwin wasn't an atheist. He couldn't be because his wife was really into the church and, you know, yes, dear, okay. And so Darwin was actually on the church board. He was actually one of the people on the Church board because he didn't want trouble at home <laughs> and uh, and he actually wasn't just a declared atheist but but he was used in that way and so so if Darwin's right and a philosophical materials materialism is right and sort of like you know that materialistic science is right then the best way to solve the environmental crisis is just to kill maybe oh you know why, why do things by half measures? Why don't we say six billion people? You know, if we kill six billion people, which would be, you know, it would take a little time, but we have, you know, we have amazing technologies now. So uh, basically the environmental crisis would end immediately. And if you're a philosophical materialist, you cannot say that's bad. You can't use words like bad. If you're using it in a moral sense, you can say uh, he's a pretty bad baseball player because he strikes out all the time. But you can just be talking about someone's performance. But in terms of moral good and evil, you cannot say that massive genocide is morally wrong. You can't say that rape is wrong. You can't say, I mean, nothing is wrong, because there's no such thing as wrong, because wrong is a metaphysical, Value and uh, there's nothing but but dead matter. There's nothing but matter And so you cannot say it's wrong you have forfeited your Right if, if you claim to be a rational human being you have forfeited your right to declare that anything is morally good or bad And so um, Fortunately, that's not all that is is Fortunately, all of that is nonsense, and, um, and 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 no one really believes it. I mean, you take this, you know, this puffed-up scientist who is a materialist, and you know, mess with his children, and and, and you know, you find out very quickly what hypocrite he is. So, who actually believes that nothing is right or wrong? nothing is morally good or bad who actually believes it other than psychotics and therefore this philosophical materialism is just nothing but foolishness hypocrisy and uh, you know it's it's the price we pay for not requiring uh people getting phds in science to take philosophy classes So again, we live in a we we live in a bi-dimensional universe. We know that some things are really good and bad as deeply as we know anything. If you say that we don't know it, then you're basically coming up with a type of universal skepticism. You're claiming that we actually don't know anything. And there are people that say that. There are these postmodern uh Disasters who, who claim that uh, you know there's no it's, it's the war on objectivity. And these people massively contradict themselves and don't even know it. For example, they say just I I was really astonished. There's, there's one guy who passed away now, his name was Richard Rorty, and there's others, who was a postmodern philosopher, and I saw again. I said last night I saw these interviews with him on, on YouTube. You know where he's. Explaining his philosophy and he was a philosopher at these you know famous universities He was a very famous philosopher, and he was saying there are no great truths but That is a great truth <laughs> <laughs> And so he's just I mean how could someone who's just babbling nonsense get a job at a university? Because he's French. Actually he wasn't French. <laughs> it's like so, although that was a, a nice try, though. <laughs> he, was in, he
1: was in the French school of philosophy. Yeah, the So French, The French have exported so many destructive ideas from their country elsewhere, but then they're not held to account for
0: it. No. No, they're not. Oh,
1: Hitler held
0: them to account? The <laughs> French? Yeah, but not because of their philosophy. So, it's because, you know, there's, the percentage of blonde French persons was too low. So anyway, so getting back to the point here. Um, so if you understand that there is a metaphysical dimension in the universe, if you understand that there is a metaphysical dimension to the universe, and then you have to start asking questions like, how could that be true? How could it be the case that there are objective metaphysical facts? And of course, ultimately, so therefore, getting back to my original claim, that uh, philosophical materialism or or empirical science can never, by definition, can never give a complete description of reality, because the very rules of science do not allow them to speak about metaphysical things. Because the, the ground rules, that's a foul ball in science. I mean, you can't talk about it. And ultimately, you can't affirm or deny it. Science depends on observation and, uh, you know, controlled experiments. And obviously, you can't control something that's greater than you. So it's interesting. So when you get to this philosophical uh, uh, materialism or this sort of uh, what I call in, in sort of epistemological imperialism, the idea that everything has to be empirical—then you have a philosophy in which, by definition, Nothing can exist if we can't control it, and even if you can't control it now in principle you can like let's say for example, stars that are too far away, but in principle, someday we could control it it's, it's not it can be controlled in principle we just have to get there so a, a, a philosophy that nothing exists if I can't control it, the way I put it it's not really a philosophy it's 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 a psychological disorder. <laughs> You know, to say that nothing, nothing can exist unless I can control it. Because if you can't control something, you can't empirically investigate it. And since God, if God, I remember when I was at UCLA ages ago, um, there was an astronomer there, I forget his name, but he was he was one who discovered brown dwarfs. And this, the brown dwarfs, by the way, it's, it, it's a, an astronomical term. It means... Um, basically you know celestial bodies that tried out were going for it trying to be stars but didn't make the cut you know and they didn't become stars and they just kind of burned out their sort of you know the nuclear engines inside they, they didn't get going enough and so they never became stars and he was saying so so the way he i remember i saw that we saw this film so I, I was taking an astronomy class and he said we know they're out there when he sound, it sounded like sunday morning religion or something you know he was saying like you know we know they're there and we're gonna find them and so he designed an experiment as, as that's what you do in, in in science you design experiments and you design experiments based on what you think you know or let's say what i'm looking for if there is such a thing as a brown dwarf this is what it would be like and this is how you detect it if you if you know nothing about let's say you're searching for something through a Empirical science, and you don't know anything about it, and and or or there's nothing you suspect to be true about it. You can't search for it. If you know nothing about something, you can't search for it because we it's it's meaningless. And if you if you either know something about it or you you have a theory that if it exists, it would be like this, then you design an experiment because otherwise. You know, why would you experiment this way, not in that way? You'd have no reason to, or no guidelines to design an experiment. Like, let's say you're looking for, you're trying to find out if there's, let's say, oil in a particular part of the Pacific Ocean. And so, what you do is you, I don't know, you take a thermometer, you know, you take somebody's temperature. I mean, that's not going to help you. You can't give some, put a thermometer under somebody's tongue and find out if there's an oil reserve in some part of the ocean. And so you design experiments, but you can say, well, wait, but a thermometer is a scientific instrument. So therefore what I'm doing is scientific. I'm looking for oil, uh, you, know, you know, underwater oil reserves by giving someone a thermometer because a thermometer is a scientific instrument. I mean, that's, that's absurd. And so in the same way, if you're searching for God, And again, you have to design an experiment that is is modeled on what you think you know about what you're looking for. And so I'm looking for someone that if God exists, if God exists, God will be omniscient, omnipotent, you know, and, and far infinitely greater than me. And therefore, what kind of experiment will you design to detect someone who's infinitely greater than you? Rationally. Not, we're not talking about piety and faith here. We're talking about a rational approach to experiment design. And so if you are looking for someone who or something, if it or he or she or they or whatever, if it exists, then it's infinitely greater than me. And so if you, if you consult your experience of the world, you find that in dealing with something greater than yourself, or a person greater than yourself, you have to please that person. Like you want a job. Let's say you need a job, the president of the company doesn't need you. There's a hundred people applying for the job. You need the job, they don't need you. And therefore, you have to somehow please him. You gotta, you know, read like job interviews for dummies, or you know, one of those books. And <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so in any situation where clearly someone has, an, let's say you're a journalist and you want to interview some famous person and everyone wants to interview that person. So you can only see that person. You can only talk to that person if they agree. And because that person, let's say, is so sought after, if they want to talk to you, that's easy. They just have their agent or someone call you and you you come rushing down to talk to them. So when you have these hierarchies of power, of importance, of understanding, let's say you wanna get into some very prestigious college and uh, you, know, you have to apply, you have to convince them. They don't have to convince you. So in the same way, the idea, can you prove that God exists uh, is really getting things backwards. Can you prove to God that you're worth the trouble? That you're not just, you know. So so even if you don't know if God exists, let's say you're an agnostic, but an honest agnostic, then you still have to conduct a rational experiment. And it turns out that the rational scientific procedure to try to find God is devotion. Because you can't just flatter God. He, you know, he's too smart. <laughs> just like if you go into, some, let's say, an interview for some a job at some big company, you really want the job, and they've seen it all, and, they, and everyone is, you know, trying to get the job, and you go in there and flatter them and say, uh, that's a that's a that's a beautiful uh, tie you're wearing there, you know. And there was like, what do they say? Anyway, there's certain somewhat vulgar expressions for you know trying to ingratiate yourself with other people, and so. In other words, you can't just engage in some stupid flattery, which they will see through immediately. So devotion, trying to please God, turns out to be a thoroughly rational, logical way to find out if God is there. And people say, you know, when people say, can, can you prove there's God? Um... If they mean in a laboratory, it, that's like an absurd proposal. Because there's all there, there's an underlying assumption there, which is thoroughly irrational. In other words, can you prove it's like okay, I'm in the driver's seat here. Can you prove to me like okay, you know, parade your god in front of me, and I'll I'll tell you whether I whether I'm going to buy it or not. <laughs> As if God is the one that's dying, not you as if God were the one that's immersed in ignorance and not you as if you know there's some significant advantage to God to be so lucky as to get your belief and so it's really that whole approach you know prove God to me then it's like let's say I say to someone okay uh you think that you've really proved some new, scientific principle, prove it to me. And the person says, do you know very much about science? Nope. <laughs> if I write some equations here, do you understand them? Nope. <laughs> but prove it to me. I mean, I mean, look at how the academic world works. Look how the scientific world works. Scientists prove things whether scientists, not to Joe the plumber. If there actually is a Joe the plumber. There must be. There must be, actually, thousands and thousands of plumbers in this country named Joe, but... So that's why... In other words, who do you prove it to? For example, I remember when I took an astronomy class, that same astronomy class in our textbook, uh, when Einstein discovered some of his relativity principles, he was being interviewed by a reporter for the New York Times no actually the the reporter was interviewing the head of the royal astronomy society like the highest scientific body for astronomy in, in the uk and the reporter said can you explain einstein's discovery in a way that my readers can understand and the scientist said nope can't do it no can do because I mean, maybe he could have, but he just, in other words, Einstein had to prove to other scientists, not to unqualified people. So if you say prove God to me, there's an underlying assumption. There's an implicit assumption in the statement, prove God to me, which is that I'm qualified to evaluate a proof of God. And now is that the case? then you could ask the question, you know, what qualifies someone to to see God? What's the qualification? So anyway, um, now getting back to bhakti yoga, that was the topic, right? That was just a brief preface. (laughs) So I should be done by very, very early tomorrow morning. (laughs) And so um, just kidding. Just kidding. So if you think about bhakti yoga, yoga means, I mean, it has many related meanings in Sanskrit. It also means process. A process and can mean specifically a spiritual process. So um, bhakti, devotion, a systematic process or a practice of devotion turns out to be a scientific, a rational way to try to understand God. Because if you look at this world, I mean, the world, if you look at, let's say, the evolutionary ladder, the chain of being, as they used to call it, and never mind you know, how all these creatures got there, guided, <laughs> unguided evolution. But the point is, if you look at different levels of living beings, what we find is that the more evolved a being is, uh, the more personal. For example, if you say, yeah, I've got, to, uh, I've got a, a pet worm. He has an amazing personality. <laughs> you know, we really connect. <laughs> or, yeah, I've got this charming E. coli that, that moved in with us. So there's, it, it, if you look at different creatures, the more the more advanced they become. The more neurologically complex, the more they exhibit personality. People do love their dogs often, and some people even love cats, which shows, you know, powers of human empathy. (laughs) So, obviously, or cows. I mean, people that actually work with cows or bulls—they always say they have they have amazing personality. I've talked to many people, not just you know devotees of Krishna who have actually worked on farms, worked with sheep or just mammals, advanced mammals, including cows. And, and they say they're all different. They all have their own personalities. And then we get to human beings, uh, you know, it, it becomes even more complex. So so if you see this, this uh, vector where the more evolved a creature is, the more personal, if you're talking about the supreme being the natural conclusion would be infinitely personal. Also, so that's one point. A second point is if God is ultimately impersonal or if the source of everything is impersonal, why do we have a creation? Why is there a creation with so many personal conscious beings? Because if, if, if the ultimate source is not personal, then the ultimate source never wanted to create the world because, you know, motives and desires are symptoms of person, personality. So, did God, was it just sort of like an involuntary divine burp? And, you know, now there's a world. So, I mean, how could there be a world? If God is impersonal or if the source is impersonal, why would a non person create? And does, is that even a meaningful use of language to say that something impersonal creates? What does that even mean? So, just as. Empiricism, fanatical empiricism, I should say, can never give a complete description of reality. An impersonal spiritualism can never completely describe what we know to be true about reality. Namely that it's filled with personal consciousness, that we have personal consciousness, feelings, desires, and so on. And impersonal simply cannot explain reality. And so the best theory in science or philosophy or anything else or history is the one that has the most explanatory power and the explanatory power of empiricism is very low. The explanatory power of impersonal spiritualism is not much better. And so because it's a principle of logic that a cause, uh, is somehow present in an effect. That's a principle of logic. For example, let's say you're driving your car as a fender bender, as they say, and, you know, unless it's on some super high, you're not supposed to move the cars. So when the insurance people come out, they look at the skid marks, they examine the cars, you know, where's the damage, what was the point of impact, angle of impact, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because their attempt to find out who was at fault in an accident is based on the assumption, the assumption that the cause is present in the effect. And the same thing, let's say, let's say you're doing uh, medical research and you're trying to find a cure for some disease. <laughs> you again make that same assumption, that the cause is present in the effect. So it's the nature of analysis that it reverses the time arrow. What I mean to say is that when events take place, anything, like you're skipping down the sidewalk or an apple tree grows or anything, events take place in time and they're unidirectional they take place in a certain direction like first this happened then that then that but analysis goes the opposite direction analysis analysis begins with the effect and tries to reason its way back to the cause so if we apply this universal analytical tool to the world the world is the effect And you're trying to reason your way back to the cause of the world and since the world at its most advanced manifestations involves personal consciousness you need to suggest a cause which explains the fact that we're persons and since we're talking about a supreme cause it would have to be an amount and type and quality of personal consciousness which is so much greater than our individual consciousness that it can logically account for all the billions or trillions and other worlds of cases of personal consciousness. And so therefore, vakti yoga, the idea of devoting yourself to a supreme cause, uh, is just logical. It's just logical. And if someone, you know, if you try to do it some other way, you're just trying too hard to avoid the obvious truth. That there's a personal source of everything. A personal conscious source of everything, a source that establishes and justifies the moral laws that we know, and so on and so forth. A a source which explains why people who are virtuous are happier than people who are not virtuous. In other words, nice people are actually much happier than jerks. And so, in other words, if you just open your eyes and look at the way the world is, uh, the logical conclusion will be that there's a personal source of everything. We call Krishna. Krishna means to attract in Sanskrit. Uh, just like, I mean, think of the relationship linguistically between attraction and traction. It's very interesting. Why? Why, why is that... Why are those two words, for example, traction means like a tractor, farming. That's why, for example, you have Krishi in, in Indian languages, including Sanskrit, which can mean plowing because it's pulling the plow. Krishi born in South India, Krushi for reasons known only to people down there. But so you have, so it's it's just, same in Sanskrit, same in Hindi or other Indian languages, same in, in English. Because attraction is something that pulls your mind. Something that pulls your mind. So just like you can pull a plow or you can pull, you know, attraction, so when, when something pulls the mind, that's attraction. And so that's the word Krish in Krishna. And na is considered an abbreviation of nand, the Sanskrit root nand, from which, you get, which means pleasure, or to take pleasure, to give pleasure, from which you get the word ananda, for example, that you all know. So Krishna means a source of pleasure and the supremely attractive one. Fortunately, God is really good looking. And because, I mean, if God was homely, you still kind of have to worship him. It's like, yeah, come on, he's God, you got to worship him. But it would be like, it'd be disappointing, you know, God was homely. So, I mean, the good news is that God is infinitely attractive and youthful and, uh, and a nice guy. So that's Krishna. And Hare Krishna, Hare, of course, the feminine aspect of the absolute, because it would be a dull spiritual world indeed if there were not a male and female aspect of the absolute truth. In fact, there's this one—I mean, I mean, romantic love, which is—and um, people, you know, look at, people give their lives for love and of all forms of love, you know, romantic love. And so why is it so powerful? Even when, you know, you're loving the wrong person, and you know, you're self-destructing, but I can't help myself. So, but still, I mean, romantic love is so powerful. It it exists originally in God, in a slightly more salutary form, but still, that romantic love, falling deeply in love, and let's say you fell deeply in love and didn't, one day discover oh my god he or she is, is a human it's like one of those science fiction movies someone falls in love and one day you know you accidentally you know your partner accidentally bumps into a wall and their skin peels back And oh my god it's a robot you're not a person so
1: <laughs>
0: or maybe it's even an alien you know disguise a human it's like for some reason Hollywood often makes re- Aliens even they're very intelligent reptilian like reptiles. It's a real weak point in Hollywood Why should aliens be like reptiles? Anyway, it's a pet peeve of mine, but but my point is (laughs) But my point is that um, That Krishna is infinitely beautiful and then the Radharvani the so the Radha and Krishna together the male and the female that is the ultimate absolute truth And because the ultimate truth of everything is love, romantic love on an absolute infinite level, infinite beauty, infinite love, romantic love. Therefore, it's the most powerful emotion in this world because it's actually the ultimate manifestation of the absolute truth, infinite supreme romantic love and love for all living beings. And so, uh, this is, of course, as my one professor at UCLA <laughs> said to me when I explained this to him. He said, "Well, my God, that's really neo-Platonic, you know, because <laughs> because <laughs> glad someone got that joke because because Plato said that everything in this world very similar to us. Plato back to Plato, you know. Plato said that." Um, that this material world is just a, a, an inferior reflection of a perfect world. So that the things we see in this world are just reflections of perfect objects in a higher world. It
1: cause a positive
0: force as eros love. Oh. Actually, eros was like essential. In the symposium, he talks about agape. It's like spiritual love. So I'll stop here. Much to your relief. So, any questions? Yes. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.
1: She Prabhupada was conducting a class. Who was? Sri Prabhupada. Yes. And one person came and he said, I am God. And he said, you are dog. And I'm (laughs) going to beat you with a shoe. Yeah.
0: Uh, I don't know if he said he's going to beat him with a But maybe he said that. I mean that you are. In a a
1: public meeting. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, Prabhupada. Yeah, that's... um, yeah, Prabhupada, he he did say that if you if you claim to be God, God, then you are Dog, because because it's it's really rude to say you're God. I mean, it's um. Yeah, to impersonate another person is is really very rude against that other person. I don't know if he said I'm going to beat you with a shoe. Prabhupada never, to the best of my knowledge, never actually threatened to personally beat anyone with shoes. But um,
1: <laughs> but he, he did
0: express strong well, views. He used, on this, used
1: to say that. Uh... Vedanta, you know? I'll break your teeth, you know. Vedanta.
0: <laughs> yeah, he didn't, again, he didn't threaten to actually break someone's teeth. He, he was giving a different example, but he was talking about Vedanta. Vedanta means toothless. So he was joking. There's like a little play on words. Vedanta, Vedanta. For the Sanskrit danta, that's where we get words like dental, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, any other questions?
1: That the prerequisite is humility, though, even to approach or even to even to take that step.
0: Yeah, let me repeat that. Yeah, this uh, lady said there seems that, that humility is a prerequisite to even approach God or take yeah, that step. Yes. To,
1: accept, yeah, to take even that step. So that's yeah. like a huge factor. Yes. I feel that that's the main thing what's lacking in many of the people. Like they may be even understanding there is an ultimate truth. But even to accept, to take a position that I
0: don't know, and I need to look into what is that I don't know, yes. that also can be such a huge challenge. Yes,
1: actually
0: Socrates said that um, at his trial, which is described in the, um, the, the apology, that, um, well, there, there was an island, there was a Greek island called uh, Delphi and there was an oracle there um a priestess actually a priestess uh for the god Apollo and people would go there and ask questions from all over the greek world people would go there and ask questions and then the the priestess would channel Apollo and then and then and then give the answer and so apparently in one such occasion the uh the Oracle declared that the wisest man in Athens was Socrates. And so Socrates at his trial, which he's defending himself, he said, well, I don't know, you know how I'm the wisest man in Athens. Maybe it's only for this reason. Because I know what I don't know. And very few people do. And so it is that. And, and actually, humility just means you're not crazy. Because if you consider how tiny we are, and you just like the, you know, you get like some supreme photographing drone or something, you know, it's like the typical thing where, so you're staying out in the field, and we're looking at a, a you know, a a a picture of you, and then and then the, it pans back and back, and then you see, that you're just, you know, how tiny you are, and then we see the whole planet, and then we see the galaxy, and it's just, so, to be humble just means you're not crazy.
1: There's actually a picture of uh, from a Voyager mission of the Earth as a tiny dot mm-hmm. bathed in a beam of sunlight <laughs> taken from outside the solar system. Yeah. So coming to that point of how tiny we are. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah we are we are really infinitesimal, like infinitely small. And so to be proud really just is, means someone has lost touch with reality. So humility is objective. It's just seeing what's really there. Yes. So,
1: uh, how do we uh, distinguish our real consciousness from this body or the reflection that you mentioned? Uh, I think probably you have said so many things about that subject in the previous sessions, which I missed. But um, how do we? I mean, a lot of time we. And I, uh, you know, I try to understand the consciousness and, you know, the whole thing, and so many times then you, through the life, carry the feeling of, I am this body, which so many times gets us the wrong impression of the the world. That's why
0: spiritual practice is important. We have to get in shape, spiritually. (laughs) And, um.
1: So how do we distinguish? How do we. Uh, whenever the time comes, right? yes you know we have to distinguish our real consciousness. well let's
0: say, let's say let's say for example, you are in a situation where you need to perform some physical activity. So if you're in shape, if you've been work, you know working out, then you can do it. and so and so we we need spiritual practice. we need spiritual practice. Just like for example, now attending this class or am I giving the class? I mean all of us, including myself, are engaged in a spiritual practice, you know, maybe, you know, outwardly, I'm the speaker, but still I'm, you know, all of us are just together. We are discussing and, uh, meditating on spiritual knowledge. And so if we have good association and we practice spiritual life, bhakti yoga, then, uh, we will stay in spiritual consciousness. So yeah, we need to practice. Yes?
1: Would you say that what you were talking about in the first half of the lecture, till you said you arrived at bhakti yoga, (laughs) was basically that uh, science has its limitations because our intelligence has limitations. Science, the the frontiers of science are.
0: Well, but, but it's beyond that. Science has limitations. I mean, for that reason, as you said, but also because by its own ground rules, by its own ground rules, its own, because science limits itself. Actually, they cheat in the sense that, I mean, science is supposed to be controlled experiment, observation, you know, a, 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 a conclusion that other scientists can repeat, and you know, they can repeat your experiment. They can also get that result. It's supposed to be that. But when they are defending philosophical materialism, they cheat. For example, take uh, the Big Bang. I mean, let's say there was it's something like the what?
1: It's a theory.
0: It's a theory. And let's say something like that because I mean, even if you accept our knowledge that Mahavishnu creates the universes mm-hmm. and then they expand, then that's also consistent with Big Bang Theory. But So we're not against the idea of an expanding universe. It's described in our literature. The point of materialism is they say it happened by itself. That's not science, that's philosophy. For example, let's say if you look at the fossil record and basically you find a lot of bones and let's say you date them and these bones are older than those bones. And it seems like the, you know, you put together, you you try to put together skeletons, and then you conclude that the older creatures seem to be more simple in some ways, and uh, the more recent creatures seem to be, in some ways, more advanced. That's science. You know, if you go around dig up bones and you date them, that's science.
1: That thinking.
0: If you say, if you say that this happened by itself. This happened by itself. No one intervened. There was no intelligence brought into the system. That's not science. That's philosophy. Right. So, so, so now, for example, there's there's a real revolution going on in microbiology. In the sense that scientists are discovering, through real science, the uh, that the complexity, the complexity of of cells and, you know, just the complexity of micro, the microbiological complexity is just like far exponentially beyond what they imagined before. If you look at Darwin's time, for example, their notion of the degree of complexity in biological structures was just like a childish oversimplification. And so now they're discovering just this fantastic, like unimaginable complexity at a microbiological level. And so the idea that this just, you know, the wind blew, the rain fell, seismic activity, and then we get we get structures that are like, you know, a million times more complex than our computers is absurd. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's madness. And so there's actually a revolution now of science, something called third way evolution or something. There's actually a growing revolution of scientists, philosophers, People in all these different related fields who are saying that this idea of unguided evolution is crazy it's just crazy and so and so if you say if you say evolution occurred fine I mean evolution is described in the Bhagavatam but to say it happened by itself that it just happened spontaneously that's philosophy and it's, it's very bad philosophy so the real problem in the world today is not science. Science is great. I mean, every, like I always say, every time I go to the dentist, I thank God for science. But um, the problem isn't science. I mean, I mean, science can it can be, can really can you know it does save lives. The problem is smuggling into science something which is not science, which is philosophical materialism. That's the problem. It's cheating. There's nothing about the fossil record. There's nothing about astronomy, which in any way suggests (coughs) that the world as we know it now came about without intelligent guidance. There's nothing in science which even suggests that and much less proves it. In fact, it's just the opposite. So science basically or those
1: who, who bat for science? Is assume that they are the only that theirs is the only intelligence, and there's nothing else.
0: on Yeah, the other side. yeah. Actually, today I just got a letter. In fact, I, mean, I can read it to you from a Harvard professor. I get, uh, you know, they send me all this stuff from Harvard. You know, because I'm an alum. They uh, they send me like these digital magazines and articles, and so. And all this stuff. I read an article by this lady who's a Harvard professor, talking sort of talking about the fact that people are kind of not believing in science as much as she would like them. As she would like. She's you know prominent professor in this stuff, Harvard. And so this is what I wrote to her. I'll read you the letter because I just got her reply today. This is very brief. Uh, her name is. Uh, Orestes, is the, I forget her first name, I put, Dear Dr. Orestes, I enjoyed your interview in the current Harvard Gazette. And you know, the article is Defending Science in a Post-Fact Era. I wrote a brief response to the Gazette, and since they may not publish it, or since I may have written to an unresponsive robot, I thought I should share my comment with you directly. So this is my letter to the editor. I appreciated Naomi Naomi Oreski's defense of science. However, I think the following statement is somewhat problematic. This is her statement. Quote, the title I had been given by the TED folks was, because she gave a TED talk, why trust scientists? Later, I realized that title was wrong. It wasn't about trusting scientists. It was about trusting science as a process an enterprise or an activity," unquote. That's me. Actually, for many of us, it is about the scientists, not the science. Western intellectual history clearly shows that several centuries ago, science began under the control and, quote, guardianship of the church. This produced certain benefits and obvious handicaps. Then in a classic historical dialectic pendulum move, Science passed under the guardianship of philosophical materialism, a philosophy no less metaphysical than the old church. If scientists would lay off the materialist metaphysics and just do science, many of us would trust trust scientists more. I realize that most scientists just do their job and do not preach materialism, but there are enough preachers in science to tarnish the enterprise in the minds of many. I won't even go into confirmation bias and other secular human problems that plague all fields of knowledge. Best wishes, and I told her, you know, from Harvard, blah, blah. In Harvard, you always like to say what your highest degree was and what year you went. So and she just wrote back, funny he has got a letter today. Very short. And she just said, fair enough exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> And then she wrote, sorry for the delay in replying. November got away from me. So that was it. Fair enough. <laughs> so I mean, she's a sort of a leading authority on history of science and all that stuff. And she said, fair enough. So the points I'm making are fair,
1: <laughs> they're fair points. <laughs> I like how you distinguish between the utility of science, which is a way of observing things in great detail, and making conclusions based on that, because we have a limited perceptual range.
0: Yeah, and and, and actually sometimes the presuppositions create the conclusions.
1: Yeah, we want to look at things within that range of perception, and, and devotion leads, I believe, the devotion leads us to Transcending our mere perceptions, our physical perceptions, so that we can actually apprehend
0: a source greater than us, we can feel. Yeah, it. of course. We yeah, of course. To, to understand Krishna, we have to go beyond the empirical. But so yeah, I think. I mean, when science creates, let's say, nuclear weapons, I'm not such a science fan. But um, you know, but scientist does a million good things. Just doesn't
1: know.
0: They do a lot of good things and, you know, there's a lot of science for which I'm very grateful. I mean, sincerely grateful. Because science has probably saved my life, probably saved all of our lives in different ways. Science has, um, you know, relieved all of us of a lot of pain and suffering. So, I mean, I, I feel genuine gratitude. I mean, I really am grateful for a lot of science. And, and not just for myself or, you know, the, the billions of people have, have been relieved from suffering and pain in so many ways. So I'm not an, at all anti-science. I, I like knowledge, but, um, they just have to knock it off because they're, they're pretty bad at philosophy they don't know what they're talking about and they should just do the science, give us the science and not pretend they're philosophers and not promote materialism, which actually destroys the very basis of a moral society and therefore increases dramatically the probability that science will be used for evil. So they're actually acting in a way which threatens the world by trying to undermine people's certitude about legitimate moral concerns.
1: I'm sure you're familiar with Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut.
0: I actually never read Kurt Vonnegut.
1: Oh, um, there's a, it's, it's about science. And the scientist in the book who's created a substance called ice nine. And once they release it, it will freeze the entire planet in a massive chain reaction in theory. And they're about to release it to see if that actually works. Well, that's nice. And <laughs> and ethicist says.
0: So yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the the evil scientist is a stock figure in Hollywood, and in many books. You know, there's sometimes a scientist saves the world, and, but a lot of times, you know, it's like the evil scientist. It, it's just it's it's a standard figure in Hollywood. You know, the evil scientist, or the naive scientist, like some like what is it uh, invaders what was it uh, mars attacks probably the funniest example of that but um yeah but but the, but the evil scientist is a standard figure in in hollywood and
1: vonnegut confronts him and puts in the mouth of evil scientist. science knows no sin
0: yeah yeah as science so i think we'll stop here for now it's getting a little late but thank you all very much and uh, <laughs> Hari Krishna. Hare Krishna. And uh, I guess we don't have time to answer questions that are on Facebook. I apologize if you asked a question. If you did ask a question, uh, please just send me a personal letter. Hari, Krishna.